Hey, so check it out. It's kind of a cool weekend for a few reasons. Uh, one year ago, I preached for the first time as the senior pastor of this church as we allowed John to retire, right? So it's been a year. Yeah. I, I hope and pray those applause are for John because that's really where I want to draw my attention is for Pastor John and Kay. They're doing well. I asked John to send me a recent picture of him and Kay, and I know many of you are still in touch with him and, and are praying for him, and thank you so much. He had a chance to preach two weeks ago for the first time at the church up there in uh, Sisters. Um, I, uh, Dick Schwebe told me, he listened to it yesterday, said it was amazing. I'm not surprised. So uh, thank you for your love for our beloved pastor, Pastor John. Um, I miss him. I'm sure many of us here do. All of us do, right? So if you're praying for them, keep doing that. They're doing, they're doing really, really well. Uh, the other special part about this weekend is it's uh, my anniversary as well. I'm 28 years married yesterday. My, my wife was at the 9 a.m. service, and everybody, when they applauded, were looking at her. I don't know what that meant. So uh, uh, I think I actually do know what that means. So I know that uh, you guys love me so much, and after service you're going to want to run and get me a present for my anniversary. And I, I want you to, or when I say birthday, anniversary. But don't don't do that. Just just give me the cash, <laughs> if that's okay. Just save yourself the trouble. I'll take the cash, gladly. I'll receive it in love. Anyway, thanks for letting me be silly. It's good to be with you guys. Um, we got a, we're winding down the book of Mark. We started in January, and it's gone fast. I've loved it. I've really enjoyed it. hope you have, too. But we've got like eight or nine weeks left. We're going to finish end of October, early November, I think. The first week in November, we'll be done with the book of Mark. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to do two things. I'm going to kind of pull the lens back and look at some big picture stuff, kind of the entirety of the book of Mark, if you will. And uh, so we'll do that first. A little bit of a detour, but I think you're going to love it. And then, of course, we'll get into the two stanzas that uh, we have this morning, which is verses 13 through 27. Let me open up with this illustration. Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato uh, taught for 50. Aristotle for 40 years. And Jesus taught for how many years? Three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who were among the greatest philosophers of our time. Jesus painted no pictures, yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, uh, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus wrote no poetry, um, but the likes of Dante and Milton and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music and still the likes of Hayden and Handel and Beethoven and Bach and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns and symphonies and oratories that they composed in his praise. Every, every, every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth. Can I get an amen? Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going to cover verses 13 through 27. Mark 12. 13 through 27. It's good to be with you guys. So fun doing this. I just love being with you guys, going through God's Word. What a privilege. Verse 13, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus in order to trap Him. Wow, good luck. In a statement. And they came and said to Him, Teacher, we 
Know that you are truthful and defer to no one. Flattery gets them nowhere. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And denarius was a coin representing a, a day's wages for a laborer in the, in the fields. And so they brought this coin and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And of course they said to him, Caesar's. And I love this. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are his and render to God the things that are God's. What a powerful, powerful verse. Our second stanza, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, they came to Jesus and began questioning Him, saying this, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. And there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died with no children. So the second one married her, but he died too, leaving behind no children. And the third through the seventh likewise also. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, they said, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? Ouch! May that never be true of us, that we don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, verse 25 says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Let's pray. God, thank you for this privilege and the joy that we have to spend time with you and focus on the words that you wrote for us. Lord, have your way with us this morning that we indeed can be shaped into the image of your Son. Thank you for your grace and your patience that you exhibit towards us in this process, Lord. We love you and we gather in your name. In Jesus' name, we all said, Amen. So let's, uh, let's talk about something that uh, can be both powerful and painful. Uh, the idea of being different. Being different can be both powerful and painful, right? Many of us, if not all of us, have either heard about someone who is different. We know someone who is different. Perhaps we've had an experience of being that person who is different. Maybe currently you're experiencing the reality of being different. It makes me think of some great movies with characters who are different. Movies like The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Forrest Gump, Beauty and the Beast, which is actually based on a true story of one of the elders of our church. We have five elders. It's kind of a toss-up to figure out which one that would be. Anyway, that's a joke. Consider this. In regards to Jesus the Messiah, no other person was prophesied about for thousands of years before being born. No other person was born of a virgin. No other person was fully God and fully man. No other person lived a perfect and sinless life. It's no surprise then that Jesus, the Messiah, is without question the most polarizing figure of all time. As a man who walked on the face of the earth, 
For 33 years, he was and always will be the only perfect and sinless person that ever lived. Anyone and everyone who comes into contact with him must either receive or reject this differentness, this holiness of our Messiah. Mark does in his gospel, does a magnificent job of revealing this reality to his readers. If you recall, Mark's audience is primarily Roman Gentile readers. And Mark's special emphasis in his gospel is to focus his reader on the power and the deity of Jesus Christ. That he, Jesus, is indeed unique. He is indeed different. He is indeed special. He is indeed the one and only Messiah. Mark wants us to know that. And so Mark builds that, and we're getting to that place. If you recall, I'll get, I'll get there in a second. Let me do this. So Mark wants to get that reality to us throughout his gospel. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Turn to Mark chapter 2. And so we're going to take a little detour here and kind of take a macro look, a bigger look from higher up, if you will. Does anybody remember what's going on in Mark chapter 2 and in the first five verses of chapter 3? Does anybody recall what's going on there? There are five disputes that take place between Jesus and some of the religious leaders of his time. And, and so let's take a look at this. Check this out. I think it's wonderful. In chapter 2, starting at verse 1, they have this paralytic that they lower through the roof uh, in, in verses 3 and 4, because they couldn't get to Jesus. And Jesus, in verse 5, seeing their faith, says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, the scribes, this is the first dispute. The scribes were sitting there and they're reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus is aware in his spirit that they're reasoning that, that within themselves. And he says to them, now keep in mind, one of the training methods or skills of a rabbi was something called counter-questioning. That's one of the ways that they learned, was to counter-question one another. Okay, And Jesus does this masterfully, and every time he counter-questions, it silences those that are listening. Because he's different. He's perfect. He's unique. He's our Messiah. And everything that he says and everything he does is flawless. And Mark is going to build this crescendo. Follow along. Right? So he, he says, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? And he gives them a question. What's easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or get up, pick up your pallet and walk? And so then he continues with that first dispute through verse 13. The second dispute is in verse 14 where he calls Levi a tax collector. He says, follow me as you see in the red letters. And in verse 15, he's sitting with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. And in 16, the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And, he, and they say, why is he doing that? Why is he eating with those kind of people? And he hears this and he says to them, is it not those who are, it, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so he ends that dispute. And then they come up with another one in verses 18 through 22. John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours do not? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom was with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? And on he goes with that next dispute. And then he gets to the fourth one about picking grain in verses 23 through 28. 
It happened on, uh, they're passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And, and uh, the disciples pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees in verse 24, why are you doing what's not lawful? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need? And on he goes with that dispute. And then he gets into our last dispute in Mark 3, verses 1 through 5. He entered into a synagogue and there's a guy there with a withered hand. And they're watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they can accuse him. And he says to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he looks around and he says to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? And what did they do? They kept silent and he heals them. It's fantastic. Our Lord is different. Our Lord is perfect. And Mark wants us to see that we have a perfect Messiah in everything he does and everything he says. How do they respond as we continue? What does Mark want us to see? Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. So the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him. The Pharisees and the Herodians don't even like each other. So they conspire how they might destroy him. That's in 3 verse 6. Look at chapter 8 verses 11 and 12. Mark chapter 8. So Mark's building this thought for us. Mark 8, 11 and 12. Jesus feeds 4,000 men, so well over 10,000 men, women, and children. In verse 11, right after that, the Pharisees come out and begin to argue with him and seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighs in his spirit and he says, why does this generation seek for a sign? And then go to Mark chapter 10. Verses 1 through 9. We went over this the four, five, six weeks ago, whatever it was, about divorce. And they questioned him about divorce. In, in verse 2, is it lawful to divorce? And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Oh, Jesus. Right? He's so different. He's so wise. He's so perfect. And they have this dialogue in verses 1 through 9 about divorce. Look at Chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. We covered this a couple weeks ago. Right after the triumphal entry, Jesus goes back the next morning and he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables and chases everybody out. And in verse 17, he says, This is a house of prayer. You made it into a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes began seeking how to destroy him in verse 18 because they were afraid of him. So we have that dispute. And then in, in 27 through 33, also in chapter 11, when they come and in, 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 in Jesus comes again to Jerusalem and he's in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, which make up what's called the Sanhedrin, they come to him and they say, by what authority do you do these things? And what does he do in verse 29? He says, I'll ask you one question and you answer me. Then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And so he asks them, was John the baptism, was he from heaven or from men? And in verses 31 and 32, they're, psst, psst, they don't know what to do, right? He's, he's got us. And so what did they do in verse 33? Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. They were silent. He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then now we get into chapter 12 and you can see it's intensifying here, right? A lot of them are happening in these latter chapters. And so in chapter 12, we see it in verses uh, 13 through 17, our verses for this morning, where uh, the Pharisees and Herodians say, shall we pay a poll tax or not? And what does he say? Bring me a coin. He says, whose likeness? And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Perfect in his reply, perfect in his response. And then it goes into verse 18. The Sadducees talk about the, the, the resurrection and this woman who had uh, you know, the seven brothers that she married. And they try to trap him there. And in verse 24, he says, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? 
Oh, it's a lot, right? As I mentioned previously, Mark 1 through 10 covers three year period of time. Mark 11 through 16, chapters 11 through 16 covers about a week, about seven days. We see only a few encounters between Jesus and religious leaders in the first ten chapters. But at the cross, but because the cross is only days away, the intensity, the opposition ramps up, doesn't it? And that's what's going on in chapters 11 through 16, where Jesus is about to take the cross as a perfect, perfect man, flawless man. And they can't deal with that. And so the enemy ramps up his efforts. As discussed a few weeks ago, the Lord Jesus Christ is our Passover what? Our Passover lamb. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Turn to Exodus 12. Turn to Exodus 12. This is what Mark wants us to know. With all those things that we just went through from Mark chapter 2 up until our chapter here, uh, chapter 12, Mark 2 to 12, the things that I just went over with you, Mark's making a point. In Exodus 12, 1 through 5, when we talk about the first Passover lamb, which resembles Jesus, right? It's talking about Jesus eventually as the Passover lamb. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel and say this, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households. A lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to him, uh, nearest to his house, are to take one according to the number of persons within them, according to what each man should eat. And you are to divide the lamb. What about the lamb? Verse 5. Your lamb shall be unblemished. For Jesus to be our Passover lamb, Mark is trying to point out to his readers that he is perfect. He is spotless. He is unblemished. And we see that with every encounter that Mark has and all those things that we just went over, how perfectly Jesus responds, how perfect he is. And I think that what's, so what's happening is the enemy is, is doubling up his efforts. The enemy knows that Jesus is about to take the cross and when he does, it's a problem for the enemy. Right? And so that's kind of indicative of our lives as well. We're on this path and God's doing great things in our lives. And when God's doing great things in our lives, the enemy doubles down. And things like the Pharisees and the Herodians who don't even like each other come after us to try to wipe us out. And sometimes we give up too soon. And we give in to the enemy. It's interesting that way. When bad things happen, it's probably because good things are happening in our soul and in our spirit. And the enemy's trying to double up on us, right? So what's happening is Mark is putting Jesus up for close inspection in his gospel. Mark is putting Jesus up for close inspection before he is to be slaughtered. Jesus is going to be slaughtered in a couple days. Just as the Passover lamb in the Old Testament in Exodus 12 was closely observed to make sure it was without blemish, so Mark is doing the same thing. He wants us to see that Jesus is perfect. Jesus is unblemished in his record, in his character, and all the things that he says and in all the things that he uh, does. If the sins of the world, if your sins and my sins and the sins of all of mankind, if they're to be removed, the lamb must be spotless. Amen? 
And that's what Mark wants us to see, that there's a spotless lamb that's going to die for us. It's powerful. Mark wants his reader to see that Jesus was indeed different, that he was indeed without blemish. No matter the occasion, Jesus was perfect in what he answered. He was perfect in what he spoke. And in the questions that he asked were absolutely perfect because he is unblemished, spotless. It's powerful. But because time's running out, the, the encounters turn more fierce, as we see. And so that's what happens starting in Mark chapter 11. The encounters become more fierce and more often. J. Vernon McGee says this, he said, Both sides bring up their heavy artillery and make every arrangement and preparation for the battle of heaven and hell, light and darkness, God and Satan. The three years of periodic skirmishes of Jesus with religious rulers break out in a bitter verbal encounter. (laughs) And Jesus wins. I love it. Some verses to consider about this before we get into our two stanzas. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, which will be on your screen. Knowing, church, that you were not redeemed. We are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your sinful way of life inherited from our forefathers. But we're redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The blood of Jesus Christ. John 1.29 says this, The next day he, he being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because Jesus is perfect, because He's spotless, because He's unblemished, whatever it is you've done, you've thought about, that's ugly, nasty, and sinful, His blood covers. And a lot of us still carry around some stuff that we're beating ourselves up over. And God's covered that. Because He's unblemished. He's the Passover Lamb. All that stuff passes over us because of Him. Because He was perfect. And so we need to be free in that stuff and not be bound by it anymore. Amen? Our outline, we're to be rendered. We're to be rendered. Verses 13 through 17, our first stanza, we are to live rendered lives, church. He says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Okay, many of us do that really well. I don't complain about paying my taxes. I just pay my taxes. I render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But think about it. We do that probably without flinching. But do we render to our God what belongs to our God? How fun would it be? Hey, Avery, are you living a rendered life? To ask each other that. Hey, Manny, you living a rendered life? Are you rendering to God what belongs to God? Powerful. Powerful. And then we're to be resurrected. Of course, when we live a rendered life, we will live a resurrected life as well. Let's read our first stanza, the verses in Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. Mark 12, 13 through 17. The Pharisees and Herodians were sent by the Sanhedrin in the earlier verses. They sent the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to try to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, teacher, and they used flattery. They used truthful words to try to deceive him, which is just so crazy. And we do the same thing, I believe, at times. They say, teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they did. And he says, whose likeness or whose image 
And inscription is this, and they said to him, Caesar's. And of course he says, render to Caesar the things that are his and render to God the things that are his. And what? They were silent. They were amazed at his perfect response. And so it's fitting that a common threat, Jesus, he's the common threat, would, would force two enemies to unite, the Pharisees and the Herodians. It happens that way, doesn't it? It only serves as further proof in my mind of an unblemished Messiah that even when they double down on their efforts, Jesus still is flawless and unblemished. The Herodians were Jews who supported the um, uh, uh, family of Herod as well as the Romans who gave them the authority to rule. The Pharisees, however, considered the Herod clan to be uh, evil usurpers of the throne of David and, and uh, Herod was also an Edomite and wasn't a Jew. And so the Pharisees opposed the poll tax that the Romans had inflicted on their area of Judea. And they resented the very presence of Rome in their land. So they hated each other. The Herodians supported Roman rule and the Pharisees hated Roman rule. But gosh, they're going to partner up to double down on our Lord. Had Jesus answered yes about paying the poll tax to pay tribute to Caesar, then he would be putting Caesar ahead of Moses and ahead of the Messiah. Had he answered no, he would have been guilty of insurrection or rebellion against Caesar. They thought they had him in a trap. (laughs) I love when people think they have Jesus in a trap. Do you guys ever think you have Jesus in a trap, by the way? That's not a good place to be, just so you know. Right? They thought they had him in a trap. Their question appears to be masterful. They pay him a fourfold compliment in verse 14, which is interesting, right? Because they're being truthful, even though they're being deceptive. And I, what I love about verse 14 is that it's actually true. And I thought, how do I measure up to what they're saying about Jesus? So think about this. Look at verse 14. They came to him and they tell him four things. Teacher, we know that you are truthful. Truthful means that we're people of sincerity and integrity. I hope that's us. And then they say, we know that you defer to no one. That means that we're not swayed by the opinion of others. We don't seek anyone's favor. We don't esteem anyone or show favoritism. Is that us? They say, well, we know you're not partial to anyone. We're not swayed by appearances or prestige. Is that us? And then it says, we know that you teach the way of God in truth. Do we teach because we know a pure doctrine and we teach and know only the ways of God, which can only be found in his holy word. And so they pay him this fourfold compliment, but they're hypocrites, aren't they? He calls them hypocrites, essentially. For one thing, what made them hypocritical? A few days later, they persecute him and put him to death as a deceiver. The sin that they have is against the very knowledge that they profess in verse 14 when they say, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one and you're not partial and you teach the way of God in truth. So their sin is against the very knowledge that they profess. Sometimes we do the same things. We declare what we know about our God and we act differently. If they did not know or believe what they said in verse 14... Then they lied to our Lord. That's not good either. Sometimes we do that as well. We say things, but we don't really know what we're talking about. And then we, and we end up lying to our Lord, or we flatter Him with our tongue. I think that we can be guilty of that. When we question the Lord, and we, 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 we want to get information from our Lord, we really want to hear from our Lord, but we really don't want to do what He tells us to do. 
I think we're guilty of that. I think people really want to seek what God has to say, but they don't actually want to act upon His Word. And I say that because I've done it, and I'll say that because people have come to me, and they'll say, well, what do you think God wants me to do? And I'll tell them, I think God really wants you to do this. And we'll point to Scripture, and they'll say, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. We laugh because it's true. We laugh because it's true of all of us at times. But Matthew 7.24 tells us this. It's not enough for us, church, just to know the Word of God. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does what? And acts upon them. That's when our lives are built upon a sure foundation. We need to start by hearing. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But we need to act on those words. His reply, Jesus' reply was masterful about rendering to Caesar and rendering to God's because by his reply, he would oblige his listeners by their own words to do what they were unwilling to do, which was two things. Pay their taxes. Pay your taxes honestly and quietly without murmuring or disputing. That's the first thing his reply told them to do. And at the same time, to do the other thing that they were unwilling to do, which was pay your tribute, pay what you owe to God as well, to live rendered lives without murmuring or complaining. Do we live rendered lives? Do we give to God what belongs to God? And if we do, do we murmur and complain? Sometimes I don't always like being obedient. Sometimes it hurts. Jesus lived a rendered life. Everything about Him was rendered to His God. Everything. We must live rendered lives. Yes, we must. That's what we're called to. It's cool. It's hard, but it's cool. The coin in our story, the coin of Caesar is important. Because his likeness or his portrait or his image indicates that the coin belongs to him, to Caesar, and must be repaid or returned to him. Render means to pay what is owed. That coin with Caesar's image belongs to Caesar. The use here in verse 16 when Jesus says whose likeness refers back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27 when they're creating man. He says, let's make him in our image in the likeness of us. Oh, so guess whose image is on the coin of your life? You get what I'm saying? God's image. We are made in his image. We belong to him. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. That part's easy. Render to God what belongs to God. Whoa. Human beings are made in the image of our Lord. All that we are, all that we have, belongs to Him. Are we rendering the things that belong to our Lord? Are we rendering the things that belong to our God? I imagine that most of us here are very aware of at least one area in our lives that is not being rendered to our Lord. You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe more than one area. I would challenge each of us to consider and pray if we are giving the Lord the first fruits of our time, our talent, and our treasure. 
Do we give the Lord the first fruits of our time? Every breath we take is a gift from Him. It belongs to Him. It's His. Our time is His. Whatever talents He's given us, our talents that He's given us, do we give of our talents to the Lord? What do we do with our time? What do we do with our talents? They're His. They're His. And then what do we do with our treasure? Mm, we don't like to talk about that in church. I hate talking about it in church. But I'm going to talk about it in church. And I'm going to give a disclaimer. Here's the disclaimer. Our church is healthy financially. You guys give generously. We don't need... Church doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. I don't need your money. Okay, that's my disclaimer. Now I'm going to let her rip. In North America, the, the, the average Christian gives 2 to 3% of their income to the church. Tithe, I believe, is the minimum standard for a follower of Jesus Christ, that we render to the Lord what belongs to, his Lord, to the Lord. I believe that means at least 10% of our income. To render to Him, not 2 to 3%. Tithe actually means 10%. Tithe, the word, actually is defined as one-tenth. Right? Make sense? And we give 2 to 3. To say I tithe 4% is actually not a true statement. We can't tithe 4%. We can give 4%. So we're doing great financially. We're doing fantastic. Our finances are strong. But I think we're missing it in our personal lives if we don't render to God what's God's. Does that make sense? Am I, am I dancing around this safely? I'm trying to dance around this really safely. We're the ones that get ripped off when we don't render to the Lord's what belongs to the Lord's. Or render to the Lord what is the Lord's, right? That's for our benefit, to render to Him. God loves us and cares for us and has great things in store for us when we live a rendered life. And so do we render our time? Do we render our talent? Do we render our treasure? Make sense? I hate talking about money. But if we're going to live a rendered life, we have to understand how to live a rendered life. Amen? Okay, we're good. The second stanza, we're to be resurrected. We are to be resurrected, verses 18 through 27. Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came and began questioning him. And they talk about this brother who dies and seven brothers in a row marry this woman. And he says in verse 24, Is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. This is the only place in the book of Mark where the Sadducees are mentioned. They, the Sadducees accepted only the Pentateuch or the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible as their authority. They only accepted the Pentateuch as their authority. They did not believe in the existence of the soul, life after death, resurrection, final judgment, angels or demons. Most of the Sadducees were priests and were wealthy and tended to look down on everybody else. And so what they're referring to about the, the brother marrying a wife without a kid actually goes back to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, which we don't have time for. But that's what it's referencing. And the design of their question was to expose what they thought was a faulty doctrine of the resurrection, that they thought Jesus really didn't know what he was talking about, about this resurrection. 
And then, of course, they also thought by asking it that they would point out the absurdity that a woman would end up with seven husbands. <laughs> right? Wouldn't that be rough? So that's what they're doing. They ask this tricky question. But as we know, the resurrection is not the restoration of life as we know it. It's the entrance into a new life that is totally different. Being ignorant of the Scriptures, they claim to accept the authority of Moses. They're Sadducees. They were all dialed into the law of Moses. They claim to accept the authority of Moses and yet fail to notice that Moses actually taught about life after death. And that's what he points out in verse 26 when he says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Exodus 3, which is what that verse is referring to, in Exodus 3 from the Pentateuch, God did not tell Moses, listen, that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am. Not I was. They're dead. But I am because they're alive still with me. They've been resurrected. There's life after death. Otherwise, he would have said to Moses, I was the father of Abraham. And I was the father of Isaac. And I was the father of Jacob. But he says in Exodus, I am. The patriarchs were alive when God spoke these words to Moses back in Exodus 3. Clearly showing that Moses taught that there is life after death. And so they were mistaken. They didn't even understand the very scriptures that they claimed to be experts of. They thought they were smart, but Jesus reveals their ignorance of two things in verse 24. Their ignorance of what? The Scriptures and the power of God. They were ignorant of Scripture and the power of God. I believe those two things go hand in hand, yes? We're ignorant of Scripture. We're going to be ignorant of the power of God. And then we're going to live lives like that. If we're ignorant of Scripture, we're going to be ignorant of the power of God. And we're going to live lives that reflect that. I want to live a powerful life. Not being ignorant of Scripture. Understanding the Scripture. Understanding the power of God so I live a life that aligns with that. The Scriptures contain what the Lord has chosen to reveal about Himself. This doesn't describe everything about God. It's what He chose to reveal about Himself because He's infinite. To be ignorant of the Scriptures will make us ignorant of His power. To be ignorant of the Scriptures will make us ignorant of His power. And for sure, the Sadducees, as we see, had read the Scriptures. And they knew them well enough to quote them. <laughs> we can do the same too, can't we? But they built false beliefs upon the Word of God and they set up their own corrupt reasoning in opposition to Scripture. How can we possibly understand the power of God apart from a true understanding of the Word of God? How can we understand the power of God apart from the Word of God that He spoke to us to reveal things about Himself to us? It can't be done. Because we get some verses like this, and there's tons of them, but here's a few. Psalm 62.11 Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. We get verses like Philippians 3.20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? He's going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. How? By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject everything to Himself. And we get verses like Ephesians 1, if you can turn there quickly to Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 23. We must not be ignorant of Scripture because we'll end up being ignorant of the power of God and we'll end up living lives that reflect that. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 18. 
Paul writes to the church. He says, church, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards you and I. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Like the Sadducees, we too will hinder the work of the Lord in our lives if we're ignorant of the Scripture and we're ignorant of the, the power of the Lord in our lives. When we don't have a proper understanding of Scripture and the proper understanding of God's power, we're going to hinder God from working in our lives and working in our church. Like the Sadducees, we'll end up becoming more accusative instead of inquisitive. When we're ignorant of Scripture and ignorant of the power of God, I think we end up being more accusative instead of inquisitive. Let me explain. Every man or woman I've ever met that is, that is just immersed in Scripture, who understands Scripture and understands the power of God, they're just all they be. They're just more inquisitive. They want to learn more. Lord, what are you teaching? What are you showing? They're just inquisitive. Those of us that tend not to be uh, in Scripture, we understand Scripture less and we understand the power of God less. We tend to be more accusative. I've just never experienced a man or woman who's immersed in Scripture and who sees and lives and reflects the power of God in their life. They just don't live accusative lives. They live inquisitive lives. They want to know more. They're hungrier. The more I learn about my Lord, the more I realize how dumb and stupid I really am. It's just like, oh my gosh, there's so much. I love it. And I am hungry and I'm thirsty for more. I want to be inquisitive. I don't want to be accusative like the Sadducees who think they know it all already. We're done. I had an ending story. We're a little bit over. Let me pray. And if you need prayer after service, our prayer team will be available down here in the corner. Thank you guys for being here. Enjoy the rest of this weekend. Lord, we thank you so much that we get to wrestle with your word and be shaped and molded by it. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, help us to wrestle with what you have for us this morning. Lord, reveal to us through the power of your Holy Spirit uh, where it is, Lord, that you... Um, want to mold us and shape us specifically. Lord, show us where we're not living a rendered life to you. You want us to live a rendered life, Lord, because it's the freedom that we get when we do so that comes from you. Thank you for your grace and your patience that you exhibit towards us in this process. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen.